0: Our God and our Father, let nothing stand between us and your Word in all of its God-given power. Help us to listen as children and servants should. Grant us to receive the full ministry of your blessed Spirit through your Word, to our good and to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by confronting two problems with my sermon title. The sermon title is How to Overcome the World, and I think that by all the, among all the sermon titles I've had in my years of preaching, that's got to be the most grandiose-sounding title I've ever had, How to Overcome the World, <laughs> a nobody pastor in a little church of a historically globally despised faith, talking about overcoming the world. Uh, we might better think that a better question would be um, whether Christianity, biblical Christianity, can survive in the world, much less overcome the world. How can we possibly speak seriously about overcoming the world? Well, in answer, I point you to the verse with which we began our worship today, 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do we believe here that Jesus is the Son of God? Scripture says that's the person who overcomes the world. And if the Bible says it can be done, well then, it can be done and I can preach on it. And I should preach on it because it's in God's Word. The second problem is perhaps more fundamental, how to overcome the world. Should we overcome the world? As we look at people who we have respected as our leaders, uh, their example doesn't seem to be the example of people who feel burdened to overcome the world, does it? It seems like these people more want to befriend the world. Do you see that? It seems like they seem more anxious to be respected by the world, to be liked by the world, to be seen as not a threat by the world. And and the worst thought they seem to have is the the thought that they might antagonize the world, that the world might not like them, that the world might mock them and cause friction. Well, should we follow their leadership in trying to cuddle up to the world? Well, again, I answer by pointing to the verse with which we began our service, We are called to overcome the world. We're not called to be liked by the world. In fact, we're told to expect to be hated by the world. And we're not told to cuddle up to the world. In fact, we're warned against trying to be friends with the world. The verse I read, plus uh, James 4.4, he calls us adulteresses if we try to befriend the world. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Well, we're not to befriend it. We're not to cuddle up to it. We're called to overcome it. So I take it that the title is on biblically sound ground. And now the question that I want to take up in the rest of the sermon is how? How do we overcome the world? Simply, we're going to consider two main points. And the first is know your enemy. The first step in overcoming the world is know your enemy. And I immediately want to clarify that when I say enemy, I speak of the world system, not the people in the world, not your unbelieving spouse or neighbor or coworker. That's not the enemy, they are slaves and pawns of the enemy, as we all were slaves and pawns of the enemy. The enemy is the world system, and if you're at all unclear about what I mean by that, that's exactly what we're going to look at now, because we need to know our enemy." Uh, In uh, ages past, fundamentalists thought the way to be not worldly is not to wear nylons or go to movies, and you know all that really missed the point, because it did not identify what the enemy is, what the world is. That's what I want to seek to do with you right now. So where do we go to see the birth of the world system? We go to Genesis chapter 3. I bet you're all saying that, but that's true, Genesis chapter 3. You've heard this before. Well, you're going to hear it again as long as I'm here. Because more and more as I observe the course of the world, I go back to what we see here. So look at Genesis chapter 3. And Satan mounts a very subtle uh, assault here. We looked at this last week, how God set up everything perfectly for our first parents, for Adam and for Eve. They're surrounded by the best fruit and vegetation ever tasted by human lips. And yet one tree, God said, don't eat. Love this tree. Don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day of your eating it, you will surely die, says the creator of that tree and of Adam and Eve. And here's Eve standing near that tree, near enough to hear the serpent. And first we see his subtle assault in verse 1, where he asks, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The Hebrew phrase suggests incredulity. Did God really say that? He's suggesting that not just that tree, but none of the trees, none of the fruit. God's forbidden her from eating all the fruit. And what's He doing? when he What's He insinuating here? He's insinuating that God is not good. He's forbidden her from eating fruit, so He's not good. Clearly, He doesn't love her. Clearly, He doesn't care about her. And so if God is not good, well, then we can't trust Him, can we? And if he's not good, how could we ever love him? And that's all built in here. And in taking this place, he tries to fill that gap. The suggestion in his insinuation is God isn't good, but I am. God doesn't care about what's good for you, but I do. God hasn't given you a good word to live by, but I will give that word. And so Eve responds, no, kind of weakly. No, he hasn't said, we can eat freely anything we want, but he said of this fruit, you shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. And Satan exactly quotes God in his response to her verses four and five. Then the serpent said, you surely will not die. He quotes God exactly only with a negative. What God said will happen will not happen you surely will not die for god knows that in the day you eat from it your your eyes will be open you'll be like god knowing good and evil so in this he rejects god's word and he rejects god's wisdom god doesn't know what he's talking about his word is not to be trusted his word is not sufficient and he rejects God's word and judgment, uh, his word and his wisdom, and he denies God's judgment. He expressly says, "You you do this and there won't be any negative consequences. The negative consequences that God promised won't happen. Nothing bad will happen to you. In fact, if you do this, not only will nothing bad happen to you, something very good will happen to you. You put your wisdom over against God and reject his wisdom and his will and his word, And you will be his peer. Your eyes will be opened, implying that they're shut now, now that they're trusting God. But you eat the fruit and then your eyes will be opened. New spheres of knowledge and wisdom will open to you and you will be God's equal, he says. So with that assurance, Eve and then Adam in verse 6 Look at the tree for themselves. They set aside God's word. They set aside God's judgment. And I just point out again, they're setting aside the word and the judgment of the one who created the tree and created them. But they're saying that they're smarter and wiser than them as the serpent had led them to think. Set aside what God says. Set aside his authority and his lordship. They entirely rest their weight on their own rebellious self-ruled judgment and wisdom And they oppose their will to God's will. They oppose their will to God's will. They are now going to create their own future. They're going to write their own destiny. They're going to be the captain of their ship and the master of their own faith. And in this act, the world is born. This is the birthday of the world. The world is born in that act, in that decision, in that defiance against God's word, his person, his lordship, his judgment. That's the birth of the world system. So seeing it born, now we want to look, letter B, at its agenda, and its agenda grows right out of its birth. Its parentage uh, dictates what it wants to do. It's in a direct line with the way it was born. The agenda of the world. First of all, its goal is, is to construct a kingdom of self safe from God. That's number one under capital letter B. To construct a kingdom of self safe from God. So they've set their self-will, their self-judgment over against God. They seek to create a kingdom. Now, they've they'd been created for the kingdom of God, but now they want to create their own kingdom, the kingdom of self, safe from God. Now, if God has a place in this kingdom, it must be as their servants. Perhaps they will uh, 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 fashion ideas of God, but they will be such as serve their ends because the kingdom is ruled by them. And if God wants into their kingdom, God must come into their kingdom on their terms to meet their ends and help them achieve their agendas. A kingdom of self safe from God. The essence of this kingdom, number two, is self-will against God the Lord or another word for self-will, is autonomy. Autos meaning self, nomos meaning law. I'm a law to myself. I set my own laws, my own standards, and those standards are superior to God the Lord. And of the many verses that paint this one that really sums it up well is Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, because the mindset on the flesh, or I would probably translate that the mindset of the flesh, the mindset that the fallen nature produces, the attitude, the way of thinking, the mindset of the flesh is neutral towards God? No. Really seeking God deep down inside? Not at all. Hostile toward God, Paul says. The natural setting of the flesh is to be hostile toward God. And he explains how. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds, for it is not even able to. Now, if you've thought through the first part, you see this perfectly clearly. It can't. The whole genius, the whole central idea of the world is to oppose God's will. It's not to be under the word of God, but over the word of God is not to be sub- subjected to God's judgment and authority, but to subject God in His world to our authority and our person. So uh, the, the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject to the law of God. It cannot subject. And this is in defiance, obviously, to God's created order. Uh, Isaiah five nine says, "'Woe to the one who contends with his Maker.'" But that's exactly what we all do. We all contend to our, with, with our Maker, against our Maker. Contrary to Isaiah 45.9. And so the verse shows this in our nature. And although we were created to revolve as all things, we're created to revolve around God. You know, Romans 11.36 says all things are from Him, through Him, and for Him. And in uh, Colossians 1, we read that all things were created in Christ and for His sake that he might come to have first place in all things. But yes, that's the way that the universe was created. That's the way we were created. And yet now we want to make everything revolve around ourselves. Uh, David Wells, a theologian, says this very well in a book called God in the Wasteland. It's a very insightful book. And he says the world is the way our collective life and society and our culture is organized around the self in substitution for God. That's another good uh, definition of the world in a nutshell. Organizing everything around the self in substitution for God. And if we're going to make that work, then we've got to do at least two things. First of all, we've got to deny God's judgment. And of the many verses that depict this, Psalm 10:13 is one of them. Why has the wicked spurned God, the psalmist asks. And then he answers, he said in his heart, you will not require it. In other words, the reason why he feels free to reject God is he's saying there'll be no judgment for this. And whose voice do you hear echoed in that assurance? The serpent saying, you shall not surely die. And so the whole premise of the world is I can do this and get away with it. Even after the sin, they try hiding among the trees from God, still trying to get away from it with it. And that's our conviction now. God won't require it. We've got to deny His judgment. But then in this world that He's created, there's lots of built-in things that we bash our shins against and bump our heads against in the way He's created things. The world is not built for us to be gods, is it? And so we run into all sorts of penalties. And Proverbs says that even though you pound a, 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 a fool like a mortar and a pestle, you still won't drive His folly out from him. No matter how many penalties, no matter how much he ruins his life with drunkenness and profligacy and disease and ruin, no matter how much happens, he still doesn't go to the heart of it and realize that the root of it all is his rebellion against God. You see a sad thing today. People who've tried to mangle themselves into looking like the other sex and they decide to change their minds and go back, which they, they couldn't really go one way and now it's, they can't go back the other way fully because of their <coughs> self uh, defacement, but they don't really come to repentance. They just say this didn't work, but they don't realize that the reason it didn't work is because God created me a man. God created me a woman. I need peace with my Creator. I need to live in accordance with Him. No, we don't learn from these things. You really see it in the book of Revelation. When the world is filled with God's judgments, these are dramatic, catastrophic things, and still we read verses like Revelation nine twenty and 21, where the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They see God's judgments everywhere and they still are not brought back down to the root of the problem to repent and make peace with God. They didn't repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver, brass, stone, and wood. They did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their sexual immorality, nor their thefts. No matter how many penalties of God They run into because of their rebellion against God. They don't look at the root of the problem, which is their rebellion against God. The whole premise of the world is I can get away with this. Or I would say the world's motto is I got this. No matter what happens, they're assured they got it. And so even though now today I've got to say that there's unraveling in American society such as I've never seen in, in my life, uh, things that we all agreed about, unbeliever and believer alike, because of our Christian heritage 10, 20 years ago, we don't agree anymore. These fundamental things, and you see misery and chaos and violence everywhere. And yet, you know, perhaps you've seen that little gif, that little, uh, or gif if you're that school of pronunciation, uh, of the little cartoon dog sitting at a table with a cup of coffee and everything's on fire around him. And the dog's still smiling and he sips his coffee and he says, This is fine. And that's the world, with God's judgments and the price of their rebellion all around them, and still they say, this, "This is fine. We're right on schedule. I got this. It's all going to work out." That's the world. That's its agenda. What's its method? How does it proceed? Let us see. It's a method. I'm going to single out four particulars. First part of its method is indoctrination. The world teaches everybody to think like a worldling. It's natural to us, but still the world wants to make sure we get it. Indoctrination, 1 Corinthians three eighteen and 19. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So he's saying if you want to have God's wisdom, first you've got to unlearn everything the world taught you. And what that tells us is the world teaches us. The world indoctrinates all of us. And this applies to everyone. Everyone who comes to Christ has got it. The first thing we ought to start doing is unlearning what we were so sure we knew. And the next verse says the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. But the world indoctrinates us with it. We're all taught it. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a danger for all of us because this is the world. The world wants to captivate everyone to its philosophy because that's just common sense. Common sense is the lost sense of the world. First, indoctrination. Secondly, required conformity, like an ant colony you look at an ant from this colony, an ant from that colony, you can't tell the difference between the two, and neither can I. But what happens if you take this ant and drop him in the other colony? (laughs) Well, they all kill him because he's not one of them. Well, the world is like one big ant colony, and it cannot tolerate... Lack of conformity, non-conformity. Oh, they all talk big about it, but they really, really don't want. They can't stand questions not from God's perspective. So, John fifteen nineteen, Jesus says, "If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you." Uh, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, which tells us the world's desire is to conform us, press us into its mold. 1 John 4.5, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. Uh, Ants hear the other ants in their colony, but you take someone from out of the colony, and all Christians are from out of the colony, and that is something that can't be permitted. Libraries that will let drag queens come and read their stories and do uh, perverse grooming activities that will not let Christians in to read their Christian books. Um, This is the world. Conformity isn't required. Third method is humiliation. Those who won't conform are humiliated. 1 Peter 4 verses 3 and 4. Peter says, you used to indulge the desire of pagans having pursued a course of sensuality, that Greek word is outrageous behaviors, perverse behaviors, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised. Or the Greek word could be translated, they think it's strange. They think it odd and weird and alien. They're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. And the word is blasphemuntes, blaspheming you, slandering you. So when they see someone who doesn't live the way they do, that person is mocked. He's slandered. What's You weirdo the matter with you? Don't you know how to have a good time? You are so uptight, you and your puritanical laws, and you're, you're uptight. Ugh, you just don't know how to have fun like we do, right? And that is the method of, well, I mean, it's very effective, isn't it? Nobody likes to feel shut out, and, and they are very diligent to make sure we realize just how strange we are, and how weird we are, and how we don't fit in. And that's part of the methodology of making sure everyone's in conformity to the world's doctrine. Uh, Those who aren't in conformity are made to feel like they are really strange, conspiracy theorists nutcases and not to be listened to, not to be elected to office, not to be given public forums, not even to be heard, not to be allowed to tweet, not to be allowed to post. We can't even hear this kind of thing. They're that weird and that out of step. Humiliation. Any of this sound familiar? See any of this going on at all? Yeah, not theoretical at all, is it? And fourth, intimidation. If all the rest won't work, then they'll just bully you into it. Intimidation. Many passages teach this. One in Matthew 10, and 18. You hear an escalation here. Jesus is sending His disciples out on a mission and warning them what they can expect. And he says, but but beware of men. And why does he say that? Beware of men, for they will deliver you to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. So there's that escalation. You'll be flogged in their synagogues. Then you're going to see the governors. Then you're going to see the kings. And then they'll just kill you. <laughs> if, if everything else doesn't work, they'll just kill you. And we look back in history and we see it's, it's been done and it's being done. Christians are being killed even now around the globe for their uh, refusal to conform to the world. And I predict that those days are ahead for us. If the Lord tarries, you say, oh, no, our Constitution is going to protect us against those things. All right, I guess I don't need to say anything. (laughs) I mean, do you see the people in power showing great reverence for our Constitution and for our guaranteed rights? And I mean, starting with the First Amendment? No. Don't think that these verses are about some strange alien planet. They're about our planet. That's the world's method. Indoctrination, required conformity, humiliation, and intimidation. And so now let's think about its grip. What is the capital letter D? What is the resulting grip that the world has? Well, very simply, the world and its way of thinking is our default setting. It's the way we all think unless we're saved from it. Everyone thinks this way unless God saves us from it. Now, somebody might say, well, no, 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 not me. I, I see through all this. I, I, my thinking is very independent of all that. To that, I would say, that's worldly thinking. That is worldly thinking. You think you are sufficient. You're smarter. You're wiser. You got this. Where did I hear that, that motto before? That's the world's motto. So anyone who thinks, oh, no, I'm not a sheep. I'm totally independent. I can, I can see through all this. Well, that's the way the world thinks. They all think the same thing. They're all independent together. at the same rhythm and the same steps. So the only way out of the world system is to be saved out of it. None of us can think our way out of it. None of us can reason our way out of it. And just the very spirit of saying, I will do this myself, that is the world. You might as well bend over, grab the bottom of your shoes, and pull yourself a foot off the ground can't be done and neither can this the only way is to be saved out so that's why Paul uh, speaks uh, in uh, Galatians 1 verse 4 Galatians 1 verse 4 he speaks of Jesus as the one who gave himself for our sins so that he might do what rescue us out of this present evil age that was the whole object of or one of the objects of his atonement Gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us out. The only way out of this world system and its way of thinking is to be saved out of it. And let me be specific. It's to be saved out of it by Jesus Christ. So either a person has repented and believed in Jesus Christ and come under his lordship, or he is still a child of the world. He might be one of the 15, or how many flavors did Baskin-Robbins have? The 31 flavors of the world. But he's still in the world unless Jesus Christ has saved him out of the world. And when Jesus saves us out of the world, we've got nothing to boast of. We didn't get ourselves out of this. We never would have. It takes a Savior to save us out of this. Uh, I remember, uh, with regret, a time I was unclear as a brand new Christian. I was trying to witness to a neighbor lady, and she was asking me questions I couldn't answer. And, and she said, um, finally, I said, well, you know, I, I don't really know the answers to all your questions, but I do know somebody who does know all the answers. And uh, I've never said I was, you can witness to me, I've never said I was very quick-witted. Um, she, started me asking, she started asking me questions about my pastor. Uh, Okay, you want to talk about that? So I started answering your questions. And probably years later, I realized that she thought I meant my pastor. (laughs) She thought I meant that my pastor has all the answers. That's not who I meant. (laughs) I meant Jesus. Jesus has all the answers. And the only reason why we know some of them is because he saved us to them. So now let's talk about that. First, we need to know our enemy. But secondly, we need to know our Savior. Roman numeral 2, we need to know our Savior. Know your Savior. And I'll just single out four crucial aspects for a world overcomer. We must know our Savior first as to His person. We must know Him as to His person. And I ask, just so I can answer it, the question of why, and generally speaking, every reason in the world. (laughs) Why? Because He's everything to us. I would hope that any Christian's mind swims with answers if somebody says, well, why is it important for you to know Jesus? Well, because only through Him do I have peace with God, Romans 5.1. He's my peace with God. He is my peace with God. Because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, and only through Him can I come to the Father as my Father, John 14.6. Because He's my hope, 1 Timothy 1, because in him all the fullness dwells, Colossians 1. All the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, Colossians 2. And I'm filled full in him, Colossians 2. He's my joy. He's my hope. He's my life. He's everything to me. He's the one who stands as my attorney before God, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's atoned for all my sins. By his blood, I'm washed clean. He's everything to me. So yeah, is it important for me to know Jesus? It's everything for me to know Jesus. Absolutely, because of everything he is. But specifically, letter B, because he and he alone overcame the world. In this context, it's important to know Jesus because He's the only human being who ever overcame the world in His own person. John 16.33 used to be a chorus very lovely set to this verse. It's a beautiful verse. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you that in Me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take good courage. Take courage, He says. Why? Why take courage? I have overcome the world. So I've spoken these things to you that in me you might have peace. He doesn't say, I've spoken these things to you because once you become a believer, everything's going to go great for you. In fact, he expressly says things will probably go worse for you when you become a believer because the world will hate you. But in me you have peace because I have overcome the world. So in our relationship with him we can know peace. Why? Because he is the world overcomer. Because the, the prince of this world, as he calls Satan, the Prince of this age, came to him and he had no purchase. He had there's no way he could grab Jesus. He overcame him. Jesus overcame him and judged him at the cross. So he and he alone overcame the world. Secondly, because he chose us out of the world. John fifteen, nineteen. If you were of the world, he says, the world would love its own because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. So we must know him who chose us out of the world because he's the reason we're not in the world. He overcame it. He chose us out of it. And thirdly, he gave himself to rescue us from the world. Galatians 1 verse 4 who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. Galatians one four. This word age, this word world, they're kind of synonymous. They're looking at the same thing from two, two different angles. The word world is where this kingdom is being attempted, and the age is the period of time in which it's being attempted. And Jesus gave Himself to deliver us from both from both the world and the age, this present evil age, to save us for the age to come, which is not the kingdom of man but the kingdom of God. So why should we know Jesus? First of all, for every reason in the world, because He's everything to us. And secondly, because He only overcame the world, He chose us out of the world, and He gave Himself to deliver us from the world. How do we know Him as to His person? Well, that's fairly simple or let me put it this way, it's fairly simply said. But the doing of it fills a lifetime. We need to fill our hearts with His Word. Turn to John chapter 14 with me. And read some... Well, I was going to say some underappreciated words of Jesus, but that's a large category, isn't it? But we'll look at some particularly underappreciated words of Jesus. John 14... Verses 21 and 23. Now in John 14:21, he says, "He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him." So how do I personally know Jesus? I personally know him by filling my heart and mind with his word. His command, well, really everything he says is a command. It's either a command to think a certain way, to not live a certain way, or to live a certain way. Everything he says comes with the authority of God. And so he says, who has my commands and keeps them. I learn them, I, re- I understand them, I memorize them, I treasure them, I seek to live them. That's the person he says who loves me, And my Father will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. So the way to know Jesus personally is through his living, inerrant, sufficient word. This is how I know my Savior. Verse 23 reinforces this. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. What lovely images. Jesus says, I will disclose myself to him. Oh, you say, great, I'll have dreams and visions. No, no, read the whole verse again. When we fill our minds with his word, he will disclose himself to us. So how does he do that? Through his word. His word is how he discloses himself to us in a personal way, by making those words personal to us, as we discussed just a few sermons ago, how God's sufficient word is his personal word to every believer. And then verse 23, He and His Father make their dwelling with us. Uh, they make their home in our hearts. Turn to chapter 15 and look at verses 9 and 10. John 15, 9. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Sorry. John fifteen nine, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Well, I want to do that. How do I abide in His love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So by my staying in the words of Jesus, I stay in the love of Jesus. That's how I know Him as to His person. Secondly, I must know Him as to His cross. I must know Him as to His cross. Now, why is that important in this connection? Turn to Galatians chapter 6 with me. In Galatians chapter 6, in this book, Paul has been countering false teachers who are trying to bring these people back under a form of sort of Christianized Judaism, and Paul is forcefully arguing against this and, and arguing the sufficiency of Christ and His cross to them and His atonement. And look at what he says very personally in verse 14. He says, but may it never be, or the King James says, but God forbid, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what is that image there? How, how have I been crucified to the world and the world to me? Well, of course, in Jesus' crucifixion, the, the cross was the most shameful uh, 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 abhorrent way to die. Uh, The cross uh, symbolized the world's total rejection, not its rejection alone, but its scornful rejection, its shaming rejection. This was the worst form of death. The world showed what it thought of God and Jesus at the cross. You could say in one way, that was the world's attempt to judge him. But at the same time, God judged him for our sins And when we believe in Jesus, we are united with Jesus, and His death with reference to sin becomes our death with reference to sin. Read Romans 6 for more of an explanation of this, but when He died to sin, and I believed in Him, I died to sin. That's why God's command is when you believe in the Lord Jesus after coming to faith in Christ, you must be baptized by immersion in water because that depicts your death and burial. When we believe in Jesus, we die to the world. The cross is that point at which and that instrument by which my ties to the world are severed for all time and its grip on me is settled for all time. He said at the start of the letter, Jesus died to deliver us from the present evil age. How? On the cross. And by his cross, he cuts the chains of the world on me. He frees me from it and he removes it from me. So, I must know him as to his cross. That is where the world is crucified to me. And if, I, if the world begins having a pole or a lever on me, I need to look at the cross and remind myself that's where I died to the world and that's where the world was crucified to me. That's where it stopped being my Lord and my theater and my aspiration at the cross of Jesus. How? Well, how do I know Jesus as to His cross? Turn back to Galatians 2. You're in chapter 6. Turn back to chapter 2. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So how do I know Him as to His cross? By living His resurrected life. By knowing that I died to sin with Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ. When he died with reference to my sin, I died to my sin as well. And when he rose from the grave, I rose from the grave as well with a new life. And so I live now, but not for the world's approval or by the world's standards. I live now by the life of Jesus Christ, which is mine through faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I know Jesus as to His cross. Um, I'll just refer you to Philippians 3, 8-11 where Paul talks about this at greater length. And what he says there is that everything that was once everything to him, the admiration of his peers and the approval of his superiors and the laws of the world, he says all that, he says I count to be lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. He says that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So it's in the, in the death of Jesus Christ that our ties to the world are severed for once and for all. So we must know him as to his cross. Thirdly, we must know him as to his will. We must know him as to his will. And this being such a seldom heard theme in preaching today, I just want to remind you how central that is. John fourteen fifteen. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will. How does it go? Keep my commandments. A very once famous, once Christian, once evangelical singer has recently totally embraced homosexuality and the whole LGBTQ, LSMFT agenda. And the the reasoning is, well, you know, I I just love Jesus. And every biblical Christian reading that thinks, but, but wait, (laughs) love for Jesus is to keep his commandments. And he has something to say on this subject, and it's not what you're saying that you can say with confidence, such a person does not love Jesus. Well, how can you be so judgmental? Well, it's not so much that I'm judgmental as that I'm literate. You know, I'm able to read. And I can read this verse that says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, math's not my big thing, but I can can diagram that one out. If somebody doesn't love Jesus' commandments, well then, he doesn't love Jesus, right? But if we love him, to keep His commandments. We learn to keep His commandments. We seek to keep His commandments. It's central, Jesus says. But also, let's talk about the embrace of His will and turn back to Romans 12, which we read together uh, just a few minutes ago, but turn back with me to Romans 12 because it's, it's very relevant in this connection. So, in Romans 12, obviously, this uh, follows Romans 1 through 11. Yes, I went to seminary to learn things like that. Uh, Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul talks about the sovereign saving grace of God in Christ. How helpless we were in sin and how Jesus saved us. And so, on top of all that, he says now. Therefore, with all that in view, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, which I've just spent 11 chapters talking about, by the mercies of God I exhort you to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual or your rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, more literally age, do not be conformed to this age but, by contrast, be transformed. Now, let me just pause pause there. So that tells me that the world is going to try to conform me to itself. Do not be conformed. You could paraphrase, don't let yourself be conformed. By what force? By this age. What did we talk about earlier? That is the natural method of the world, to force conformity among all. And it doesn't say just because I became a Christian, okay, well, you're, we don't care about you anymore. They, they want to get me back because Satan wants to get me back. And you say, well, but um, you can't do that. Once saved, always saved. Well, Satan's a total Arminian. You've got to know he's a total Arminian. He's, in fact, he's a Pelagian. <laughs> Satan thinks we became Christians just because we decided to, and we can decide to stop being Christians too. And, and so uh, constantly there's a, an attempt to win us back. The world wants to win us back. But Paul says... Don't let it happen. Instead, he says, be transformed, different word, by the renewing of your mind that you may approve what is the will of God which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't you see, friend, in light of everything we've studied, that is the exact counter to the world. The whole heartbeat of the world is to reject the will of God and to judge it as being insufficient, unacceptable, and not good for me. But the Christian, the Christian is conformed by the renewing of our mind to see the will of God as good and acceptable and perfect. Exactly what we need. And we put ourselves under it. That's the process of renewal that proofs us against the world's program of, of forced conformity through indo- indoctrination. So you see, that's exactly what we do in Romans twelve. We need to know him as to his will and fully embrace that will and give ourselves regularly to a fresh reaffirmation that that's what we're, that's what we're about. Because every day the world's going to knock at our door with a little pamphlet it wants to show us. <laughs> if a Jehovah's Witness isn't there, the world's going to be there. It's going to be on our TV. It's going to be on our computer screen. It's going to be everywhere. Just wanted to share us the, the wonderful four steps to a happy life. <clears throat> and we've got to be ready to be transformed so that we're not conformed. Letter D, we need to know Jesus as to his indwelling, as to his indwelling. And that's one of the great, wonderful provisions of the gospel, the indwelling of Christ. Turn with me to Second Corinthians. Oh, I need to fill in the blanks. The principle is if Christ is in us, we are freed from the world. If Christ is in us, we are freed from the world. Now turn to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, please. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And I'll just read to you, but, but just go ahead and stay here. By this is, love has been perfected in us. 1 John 4.17 1 John 4.17 By this love has been perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. How can I be like Jesus Christ in this world? Because He lives in me. But... I need to test myself to see whether Jesus lives in me, and this again is a underappreciated verse and truth in the in the New Testament. But we're to test ourselves and look. So, what what does that tell me when I'm told to test myself uh, to see? and examine myself to see whether Jesus lives in me. Well, what that tells me is the indwelling of Christ has symptoms. It has effects. It shows itself in certain ways. And there's a whole school of Christian thing that says, oh, no, if somebody says I'm of the opinion that Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead, well, he's a Christian. It doesn't matter how he lives or what he says. That makes him a Christian. Mm, Paul doesn't seem to go that way. He says that living faith shows itself. Just like James says, Living faith shows itself. Saving faith is living faith. And living faith shows itself. I can test myself and examine myself. So let's let's think about the application number two then. Just with that ringing in our mind and with the rest of what we've seen ringing in our mind, what are some ways that we could test ourselves to see if we are overcoming the world, if we're set to overcome the world, or whether we're in the process of being overcome by the world? So one question would be, Do I increasingly see the importance of daily Bible reading? Do I increasingly see the importance of daily Bible reading? And maybe you think, oh, that is an awfully tame and obvious thing to say. Is it now? I can easily hear someone saying, I'm too busy to read my Bible every day. And besides, I know what I believe. I was taught it as a child. I know what I believe. So what would that say then? What would that say... I don't need daily to look in God's Word. I've got this. I know enough to to make good decisions. I know enough to make my way through in an acceptable way. I I, I know I don't need to constantly be checking my thought and my my motivations. Uh, uh, My head's in the right place. My heart's in the right place. What does that sound like? Why that sounds like self-sufficiency to me. It sounds like self-sufficiency. It sounds like self-confidence. In fact, you could say it sounds like self-will. And what kind of thinking is that? Well, that's worldly thinking. Not nylons and lipstick. That's worldly thinking. Thinking, I got this. I don't need... Concept. i tell you what, friend. I've been a Christian for coming on 50 years. I don't know all the Bible. I constantly need to write, read it. I constantly learn new things and find sin in my life and things I need to repent of as I learn Scripture. Now, maybe you could well be ahead of me in that, but you will never run out of things to learn from Scripture. You will never live long enough that you've learned everything you need to know in Scripture and applied everything that we need to know from Scripture. So, am I increasingly seeing the importance of daily Bible reading or or has that spirit of self-sufficiency worked its way into me in kind of a sanctified religious way. But still, I don't need constantly to look at God's word. I probably know enough to get by on with my own good sense. Okay, then. There's one test. Another test is, does Christ mean more and more to me as I go on? Do I more and more see the Preciousness of Jesus, the infinite value of Jesus, the, the wonderful excellence of knowing Jesus. I, I tell you, uh, you asked me what, what the thought of heaven means to me above everything. The thought of heaven above everything means seeing the dear face of Christ in eyes freed from the flesh's corruption, from a heart fle- freed from the flesh's corruption. Seeing Him as He is and being able fully to appreciate Him without distraction, without the constant sleeve-tugging of the flesh and the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? So I can look at Him and see Him as He is and love Him as He is. That's what heaven is. Well, is that process going on increasingly in your life? Then you are being transformed and not conformed. But on the other hand, are things of the world meaning more and more to you? Uh, Status markers and possessions and accomplishments and achievements. Well, then that's worldly thinking trying to get its grab on you another test does my church involvement deepen and deepen I mean if you've been here for 10 years for 10 years you've heard the importance of being a a member of a church being accountable committing yourself to a local church and serving there so have you done that 10 years ago nine years ago eight years ago seven years ago is that where you are? Is your, is your uh, value of the church? See, because to think otherwise, to think, well, I don't really need church. I don't really need to be that involved in church is to say, well, but God does say that, right? Haven't we seen that a dozen, two dozen times? God does say we need that. God does say we need other people watching over us as we need to watch over other people. He says we need to be in relationship to them where we're serving them and helping them, and they're keeping watch over us. We need a leadership who watches over us that we need to submit to. Hebrews 13, that keeps watch over our souls. We need that. God says we need that. Uh, we need to be accountable. We need to be in a body where we can be disciplined if we sin and don't repent. God says we need that. But do we say back, no, I don't think I really need that? Okay, then, what's that thinking? What's the thinking that says, what God says I need, I don't think I need. What God judges is important for me, I think is not that important for me. What's that thinking? Well, that's the world's thinking. So, are we growing in conformity to the world, or are we overcoming the world? Are we being overcome by it, or are we more and more becoming overcomers of the world? Another self-test. Do my greatest interests differ from my unsaved friends? Or can we talk for hours and hours and never get anywhere near Christ? because we're talking about what matters to, most, to, to us most and what matters to them most matters to me most too. There's no real difference between them and me. Well, then I'm not so much being an overcomer, am I? If that's the case, I'm more being overcome by the world. These are real-time ways to test ourselves about the indwelling of Christ. So, we test ourselves because only by Christ's indwelling can we overcome the world. And so what if we see, oh, oh I've lost ground here. I've lost ground there. There's some things that made me cringe. I realize I, I have slipped off there. What do we do? Well, we need to hear the words of Scripture again. It, it, Revelation 3.19, what does Jesus say? Who does he reprove and rebuke? He says, those I love, I reprove and discipline. So if something you've heard and thought of has reproved you, has made you cringe, then what do you do? What do you, how do you see that? Well, you see it as Jesus showing his love for you. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline, he says. And so what does he say to do? Therefore, be zealous and repent. So if I see an area where the word of God is biting me today, I need to be zealous and repent because Jesus loves me. And he's calling me to be zealous and repent. That's why he's doing it. not Because he's mad at me, not because he hates me, but because he loves me. And also, 1 Corinthians 3.18, I remind you in closing, this is what Paul says. He says, let no one deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. It's a process of unlearning all the assured truths the world has taught us so that we might have true wisdom, the wisdom of God. And if we've seen areas where we've taken on the thinking of the world, then that's the place where we need to, as Paul says, become foolish, unlearn that, that we might learn the wisdom of God. So, overcoming the world begins with, and it depends on, being overcome by Christ. That really is the central thing. Overcoming the world depends on being overcome by Christ. So I ask first, has Christ saved you from the world and become your Lord? And if your honest answer to that is no, He has not. Then I urge you, I, I plead with you, call on Him, turn to Him, repent and believe in Him, seek His salvation and His mercy. Put your faith in Him. He delivers us from the world and He alone. Uh, Has the world distracted you and divided your attention and maybe dulled your love? Well, then be zealous, repent, and be renewed in your mind as the Lord calls us to. His mercy and grace are always there for the believer to restore us and renew us. And is the daily battle finally just wearing on you? Yes, you're walking with the Lord to the best of your ability you are reading the Word, you are serving in church, you are walking with Christ daily, and yet still, every year seems to get worse and harder, and it just is exhausting. It's wearying. Well, then you need to remind yourself that this world is not our home. We're strangers, and we're pilgrims passing through. We're seeking a city, not made by human hands, but made by God. And when we pray, Your kingdom come, We're also praying, may my home come. Because that's our homeland. That's where our citizenship is. In the kingdom of God. So be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. And Christ will overcome the world. So stay close to Him. Walk with Him. And you too will overcome the world when He overcomes the world. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that You'll use it as a scalpel to do whatever needed surgery in our hearts to lead us to know You and treasure You more dearly and know the hope and the guidance that we have from Your Word alone. In Jesus' name, amen.